You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder in My Family. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder in My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting Patreon.com slash TheMurderMyFamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Hey, listeners. This episode's going to be an update episode, and it's long overdue for two cases that have been close to my heart, cases that I've covered extensively. The 2017 murders of Libby German and Abby Williams in Delphi, Indiana, and the December 1975 murder of Lindy Sue Beekler in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Both of these cases have seen an arrest, and they're hopefully on the verge of seeing convictions of killers in both cases. At the end of the episode, I'll also provide a brief update on the case of Devery Schiller, who was murdered in California City in 2016. I'll start off with Abby's and Libby's case. I wrote about Abby and Libby's case extensively when news of their murders first broke in February 2017 on my blog, TrueCrimeGuy.com. It was the most popular article on my blog and generated the most replies. Hundreds of replies. It was clear to me from the beginning that this was a case people cared about. Two young girls went out for a walk on a day off of school and didn't come home. What followed was a nightmare for their families, and a years-long battle by police investigators to try and solve the murders of these two girls. Despite audio and video evidence the girls captured of their killer, and those images and sounds being spread worldwide, 
It took an agonizingly long time for an arrest to come in this case. It was frustrating to have as much evidence and clues as police had, yet not see a resolution in the case. Along the way, I had the honor of having Libby's grandparents, Mike and Becky Patty, on a very early episode of The Murder of My Family, way back on episode 6. Then much later, I had Libby's sister, Kelsey German, in episode 38, titled Live from CrimeCon 2019. If you haven't listened to those episodes, go back and check them out. In this episode, I'll be focusing on the events post-arrest of a suspect, but these earlier episodes will give you a look back at what was going on in the case over the years in real time and what the family members were thinking. I had the privilege of meeting Libby's and Abby's families at multiple annual CrimeCon conventions, where they would bravely come to keep the case in the spotlight until there was an arrest. And finally, that day came in October 2022, with the arrest of a man named Richard Matthew Allen. He's accused of murdering both Libby and Abby, and is currently going through the legal process. And hopefully at the end of that process, he'll be convicted. And while a conviction won't bring the girls back to their families, Perhaps it will bring them some peace and help them in some way as they try to heal from this tragic chapter in their lives. There were so many rabbit holes and potential avenues of investigation that were explored in this case and discussed on social media. At some points, the speculation seemed endless, and I can't possibly touch on all of those things in this episode. I instead want to focus on the man who has been arrested and charged in the murders and provide an update and timeline of what's happened since that arrest. So let's start with the arrest of suspect Richard Matthew Allen. He was arrested on October 26, 2022, and two days later on October 28th, news outlets began reporting on the arrest. That same day, Kelsey seemed to indicate on social media that it was true. Her tweet read, Just know how grateful I am for all of you. No comments for now. Any questions, please refer to the Carroll County Prosecutor's Office. There's tentatively a press conference Monday at 10 a.m. We will say more then. Today is the day. It was huge news. People everywhere wanted to see the monster who had committed the heinous murders of these two innocent girls. A lot of people thought surely he must have come to Delphi, committed the murders, and then escaped to under whatever rock he had crawled out from. The thought of the killer living in the Delphi community was too hard to believe for a lot of people. But many others feared that the killer was there, hiding in plain sight, and that turned out to be the case. Richard Allen had been living in Delphi all along. He worked at a pharmacy there as a pharmacy technician, and he had a home in the community with a wife and a daughter. As details began to emerge about the suspect, some people were in disbelief. It was overwhelming to think about someone being able to blend in and hide so well amongst Delphi residents. But Richard Allen did that for almost six years following the murders, until he was arrested. Libby's family would later say that Richard Allen even developed and printed photos for them in the pharmacy where he worked. Photos that were the ones used at the girl's funeral. And according to Becky Patty, Richard Allen didn't charge the families for the pictures. 50-year-old Richard Allen was booked in the Carroll County Jail on two counts of murder. Later, he was moved to a state facility, reportedly for his own safety. Apparently, inmates in that jail didn't take too kindly to child killers. I don't want to speculate too much about anything in this case that's not verified, and I'd rather focus on what things we know for sure. One of the most aggravating facts to come to light is that not only was this accused killer living in Delphi the entire time, but he had actually been spoken to by investigators early on, and he actually admitted to being in the area of the Monon High Bridge on the day Libby and Abby were killed there. Somehow, although Alan was supposed to be elevated for a closer look by investigators, 
A clerical error caused his name to get lost in the shuffle of countless names police had to sort through. It wasn't until years later, when they were reevaluating all the names on their list, that they realized Allen had never been looked at again after his original contact. Following his arrest, Allen was issued a public defender. He requested one after telling the court that he couldn't pay for an attorney since he could no longer work due to being in jail, and he claimed his wife couldn't work out of fear for her safety. There's been a variety of both leaked and officially released documents regarding this case, and I can't touch on them all, but you can easily find them online. What we do know is that by Allen's own admission, he was in the area of the bridge around the time of the murders, and a gun that he owns was examined for ballistics evidence, and it was found to be the same gun that had ejected an unspent shell casing recovered at the crime scene. That shell casing was found just two feet away from one of the girl's bodies. Other documents detail that the girls were killed with a knife, and that some of their clothing was taken from the scene. As far as evidence, and what ties Allen to the girls' murders, again, I don't want to speculate too much. I'd rather wait for all the facts to come out at trial, and that trial is currently set to take place in January 2024. Since his arrest, Allen's legal team has done a lot of maneuvering trying to get a change of venue. Then, they recently tried to get Allen moved from Westville Correctional Facility, a max security prison, claiming that his mental and physical health were declining. This request was denied, and he will stay in Westville until trial, in an 8 foot by 12 foot cell. He continues to be on suicide watch. Photos of Allen behind bars show a disheveled looking man who's lost a lot of weight. There are continued reports that his mental health is suffering, and apparently some of his odd behavior includes tearing up and eating notes given to Allen by his legal team. Recently, it came to light that in April 2023, Richard Allen was speaking to his wife on a jailhouse phone, a phone call that was being recorded. He reportedly confessed to her multiple times in that phone call that he had indeed murdered Libby and Abby, and apparently his wife, shocked by the confession, hung up on him. It remains to be seen if she'll support or stand by her husband, and you have to feel for her and her daughter, as they too are victims of a different kind. To find out that your husband and father is not the person you thought they were, and can be capable of such evil, has to be devastating. And as we talk about on the show a lot, in murder cases, there's a ripple effect that affects countless lives. Prosecutors in this case are seeking the death penalty, and we'll have to wait till January 2024 to see what unfolds. In the meantime, Libby's and Abby's families are undoubtedly bracing for the trial. They may find out details or get some answers, but they may never find out why. Why did this alleged killer do what he did? No matter what the outcome of the trial is, I hope that is not something that eats at them or burdens them the rest of their lives. Sometimes, as in the case of many murders, the why is what eludes loved ones of the victims. The crimes often don't make sense. There is some good news regarding Libby's family. Her beloved grandmother, Becky Patty, bravely battled and survived cancer, never once stopping her fight to keep this case front and center. And Libby's sister, Kelsey, became a fierce advocate and went on to college, taking courses in psychology, forensic science, and law. She wants to use those skills one day to, to help families who are victims of crimes, crimes like the one her family's had to endure. She's also recently gotten married, and she's expecting her first child. Like many listeners, I'll be watching eagerly to see what happens in this case, and my thoughts and prayers go out to Libby's and Abby's families as they try to navigate this next difficult chapter, and I hope that everyone out there will rally around these families as they await the outcome in this case. The next case I want to update listeners on is that of Lindy Sue Beekler a 19-year-old newlywed who was stabbed at their Manor Township apartment in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, 
back in December 1975. I covered Lindy's case on episode 19. For years, her case stumped police, and her family feared that the case may never be solved. But after having success solving another area cold case, that of Christy Marak, using genetic genealogy to catch her killer, Lancaster County authorities decided to employ the same tool in Lindy's case, and it worked. In July 2022, 68-year-old David V. Sinopoli was taken into custody and charged with Lindy's murder. His DNA was found to be a match with DNA left at Lindy's crime scene decades before. As we heard in the Delphi update, it turns out that Lindy's alleged killer hid in plain sight right there in Lancaster County for all these years. But he did have some troubling things in his past that when looking back, could have been a clue that he might be capable of harming young women. Sinopoli was sentenced to one year of probation in 2004 after pleading guilty to invasion of privacy and disorderly conduct. He admitted to spying on a woman who was naked in the tanning room where he worked. A check into his past reveals that the accused killer once lived in Lindy's apartment complex sometime before she was killed, and it appears he actually lived in the same building. Unlike in the Delphi case, not much is coming out about the suspect since the arrest, nor is there a lot of information about the court proceedings, but Sinopoli is in jail without bail, awaiting trial, charged with one count of murder. It seems that both the prosecution and defense needed more time to prepare for the eventual trial. It's not clear if the prosecutors will seek the death penalty for Sinopoli or life imprisonment. While Pennsylvania is a death penalty state, the state's governor, Josh Shapiro, announced that he will not issue any execution warrants during his term and called on the General Assembly to join nearly half the country in abolishing the death penalty permanently. So it seems likely that even if found guilty, Sinopoli will likely wind up serving life in prison. As is the case with the trial in Abby's and Libby's case, we'll have to be patient and watch to see how things progress here in the court proceedings against Lindy's accused killer. When news of the arrest broke, my jaw dropped. This was a case that I had worked on closely for a long time, and while I felt it was always a solvable case, to see the arrest actually happen was a welcome surprise. I still remember the email Lindy's brother Mike sent me when the suspect was arrested. It read simply, Have you seen the news? He was excited about an arrest in his sister's murder, but was nervous and unsure of what was to come next. We went on to talk about how great it was to have a name and a face after so long, to know who did this. But we still don't know all the details, including the why. I'm happy for Michael and his family to see that an arrest has come after so many years, and I'll be even happier when and if the suspect is found guilty for Lindy's murder. Perhaps that will help heal some of the wounds Lindy's family have suffered over the years, not knowing who killed Lindy, a young woman who had her entire life ahead of her. I'll be sure to bring forward any new updates in Lindy's case in the future. One last case I wanted to update listeners on before we wrap up is the 2016 murder of 23-year-old Devery Schiller in California City. I covered her case in episode 11. Her mom, Debbie, recently reached out to me to tell me that a suspect in her daughter's case is in jail, awaiting trial for two other attempted murders, but not for charges related to her daughter's death. Although the suspect hasn't been charged in Devery's murder, Debbie says that she continues to keep the faith that she will one day see justice done for her daughter. Debbie told me that last month, on the seventh anniversary of her daughter's murder, she released a book she wrote titled Vilema Multisolus, a narrative by Devery's mom. It's in ebook and paperback formats and can be found online by Googling the title. I'll also put links in the show notes. I'm rooting for justice for Devery, and I hope that I can one day bring listeners an update that the killer in her case has been apprehended. 
These are only a few updates on dozens of previously unsolved cases that I've covered on the murder of my family. If I've missed any big updates on cases I've previously covered, I hope that the family members of those victims will reach out to me to provide me with updates. There's nothing I like to hear more than cases being solved or progress being made towards a resolution. I also want to thank all the families that up to this point have put their faith in me to respectfully and tastefully tell their and their loved ones stories. It means a lot to me and I'm honored to continue to do that. If you're a listener who's lost a loved one to a murder, or you know someone who's lost a family member, whether the case is solved or unsolved, newer or older, if you need a platform to discuss that case, I'm happy to provide that platform on this podcast. Feel free to reach out to me on social media or by using the contact form on my website, themurderofmyfamily.com. I currently have open slots for cases available in 2023, and I'd be honored to tell your story and that of the loved one you've lost. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.